I don't think I could be a goalie for anything. I've played goalie for things not that weren't really that competitive and been like, I hate this. Yeah. It's too stressful. You're just standing there and everyone's going to hit stuff at you. I don't like it. That's what I like. I love it. I yeah. that <laughs> that No, no, no. I'm just watching everything. And I'm like, where's part. it coming from? Ah, I can't go out there. I can't like run over anything. So you just feel frustrated. That's what yeah. you're saying. I'm just standing. I need to be I more mean, I guess if someone gets really close, you can. Especially if you're a if you're a soccer goalie, you're going to get kicked in the face. But if you're a hockey goalie and someone touches you, your whole team's going to fight them. So yeah. it's more protection that way. No one's fighting anyone in soccer. They're just all flopping and falling over and holding their leg. So Flop fest. That's all. If there was a brawl in soccer, it'd be over pretty quickly. <laughs> it would be so fast. <laughs> Everyone just pretending they got hit in the face, falling on the ground. <laughs> so welcome if I had an opinion, <laughs> how much of that? How much of that is gonna get cut? <laughs> uh, the cold open. You've been uh, rolling for twelve minutes. Yeah, but uh, I'm Jeremiah. That's Nigel. That's Gordon, and we are here not to talk about which professional sports I can play. Uh, in a year. handball. Ooh, is handball a professional sport? I. I Oh, no, it is. It it's is an Olympic sport. It is Olympic. I don't think I get paid for it. How much do you get paid for being on an Olympic team? Nothing. You're supposed to be. No, 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 no. If you win, depends on the country. You get money. No, Dep- no, no. You get money for winning. It, it depends on the country. Wait, what? You Why are they taking my money? Get, I, but if I won a gold medal, I should. You get, get a gold medal. No, I get congratulations. So if no, you, you don't. yeah, <laughs> no. there's prize. Your team gives you the the money, not what? the not Olympics. Well, we're probably giving people a lot of money. <clears> so like small countries give their players like a million dollars to win a gold medal. The U.S. doesn't. We don't we do not do that. We win too many medals because they we get all the and you have to get taxed on do you think your I get prizes. As a handball player, <laughs> I get my own shoe. No, you'd get your own arm sleeve. Yeah, it's like a shooting sleeve. And like, this is really cool. It has crazy designs on it. it. Just has my face on it, but it's all stretched out over your arm. <laughs> Can't tell what it is. Just skin colored. I was just gonna put your name on it. You want to put your face? On it? <laughs> yeah, I want to make it real crazy. You know, like if I if I got a shoe, my first one, I'd be like, let's try it. You know, let's go for this. Let's go for the craziest thing we can think of. Like if I was a hockey goalie, my helmet would be insane. It would look like your face. <laughs> That'd be funny. I think that would actually be the funniest. Your this part is my teeth. <laughs> just a big old mouth. <laughs> Who paints those? I think that would be amazing. Just random people? I think that would be amazing <laughs> if a hockey goalie put their face on it. That would be awesome. <laughs> but no one, it would take a while for people to figure out what it is. Like, Mm-mm. there's Mm-mm. a skin colored. <laughs> what if they're bald? I think it would take a while. <laughs> it's awesome. All it would idea. look like is just skin. How, how has that not happened yet? I, that didn't. That seems like an oversight. Some goalies had the year. Wasn't it Damco that has? No, not uh, Markstrom. Had the years. Ears, yeah, ears on his. Ears on his that's, if you're not gonna have your whole face, what are you doing? You know, then your ears have to be higher. Anyway, <laughs> again, no, we're talking about. Worried about, about, lo- about logistics. <laughs> that seems like disproportionate. <laughs> it does. It's all got to be proportional, or else it looks crazy. That's why my head doesn't look as big as it is. Um, <laughs> it's gonna make everything else big too. <laughs> yeah. If everything on your face is pretty big, it's like, oh, he does have a big head. Let's see. We we did this last time. Let's see That's what we got. For the day. Oh, no. Lands on God again. <laughs> Forgiveness. Pardon for one. sin. There we go. I don't know how that's going to tie into what we're talking about. Because we're here to talk about the offices of the church, uh, which is... I have an office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we're not going to take a tour um, of Parkside and show you our offices. You can come see those at any point, I guess. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> 3200 East Walnut. Uh, <laughs> send, your <laughs> send your complaint letters there. Um, where was I? Church offices. Uh, so according to Grudem, this is what he says. A church officer is someone publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. And he says elders and deacons. So those are his two. Um, so we're going to talk about what it, what those um, things are. I forgot to pull up the one in Acts to talk about deacons real quick. So we'll start with them because I feel like that's the easiest one. So what is a deacon? I hope I went too far. You went too far. Yeah, I went to Act 7 instead of Act 6. That's too far. Now you're going too far. No one knows what a deacon is. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) We have them. Were we we supposed to fill in your space? Deacons are servants of the church. Deacons are primarily concerned with physical needs, like helping widows or the poor or different physical needs around the church. A lot yeah. of times they're the ones that are serving communion in the sense of service. Like they're they're acting in such a way that it's a benefit to the whole congregation. Yeah. So Acts 6.1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word uh, in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, And so they put forward these people, uh, Stephen, Philip, uh, Nicanor, that's a fun name, Timon. (laughs) Do not even, there will be no. Not Pumbaa, though. No line. Parmenius. Uh, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men uh, to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, and so that's that, that's what the first deacons were. Um, and so their goal was so that the people who are the teaching people in the church can focus on teaching while the deacons focus on the needs of the people. Um, the passage has also been used to... Uh, I've seen it mostly in Baptist churches where they don't have elders, that their, their leadership team is deacons um so i don't know how how they would differentiate between deacons and pastors necessarily but that passage has also been used to substantiate that deacons are the ones who deal with church conflict that when it's not just that there was a need a physical need that was there but that uh, the deacons are there to make sure that um, there's church unity and church community that's taking place so that the teaching and the preaching can continue to happen and prayer continue to happen uh with the, uh, the apostles or the elders, I guess, as the New Testament continues, um, so that it doesn't, their, their energies aren't divided. So in some contexts, uh, that would also be an appropriate um, description of deacon service to be a part of church unity and resolving Is church that conflict. also because Stephen preached? That's why they uh, think that as well? Yeah. I don't come from a yeah. Baptist background. And Philip was also a preacher, right? Yeah. He's one of the seven. His daughters are prophetesses. Right. and Yeah. Um, so I, <clears throat> I think part of the weird thing is if you're at least the Southern Baptist churches I was in, um, you have deacons and then you have trustees and the trustees do what it seems like deacons do. And then the deacons are doing what elders do. And you're like, why don't we just use, use the, the terms, the church, the words that, that are, are in, in the Bible. <laughs> so, and where we see this distinction, just, um, 
specifically is in First Timothy 3. Um, so we'll start, we're actually going to go backwards, but in verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise, so this is uh, as opposed to overseers, uh, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Um, they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives likewise should be worthy of respect, not slanders, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their own their children and their own households complete, co- uh, competently. I almost said completely. That was weird. Uh, for those... who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, So those, we have a, um, with both of these offices, we get a description of what it, what the qualifications for holding the office is, which I think is important. People of character. Yeah. So people of character um, and holding to the faith, and then we're supposed to test them. So we're not supposed to just be like, oh, you're a nice person, you're a deacon now. Uh, <laughs> there is. You like doing stuff around the church. You're a deacon, right? Which yeah. is sometimes what happens. Is we sometimes what Paul doesn't go. Well, we're going to base it off of their ability to serve. We're going to base it off of their character, character and their faith. And then, if they have those things, I think one of the assumptions is they're going to serve anyway, right? So we in Acts we have these people, and it says find people who are full of spirit and wisdom, and then we're going to have them do the service thing, yeah. uh, because we are all called to be servants. So I think. And there's a fact that some there are some spiritual gifts that are just naturally serving yep. gifts. Like, sure. So the gift of service is a real thing. Um, we're all called to serve, but we're don't all get out of serve. it. So I think that's <laughs> I think that's where the distinction is made. That just if someone could have the gift of service, um, but theoretically, because I think the point is not to make people deacon here at least is to not make people deacons before they're ready, right? So, like, someone could have some of these things and not all of these things, and therefore they're not qualified to be a deacon. Uh, and so if they're not qualified to be a deacon, it doesn't mean they could never be qualified to be a deacon, right? Yeah. They might not be competently caring for their household. Okay, so you can't be a deacon. But that doesn't mean a year from now you're not competently caring for your household, right? Yeah. So, um, and that's, I think, where the testing part comes from. Yeah. Is And so for here at Parkside, I guess, one of the ways that works, and a lot of churches the way this works, is having, we have, like, a nominating committee who puts forward names of people based on this list and then the job duties of deacons and like yeah. what we need, how many deacons we need, right? Because you could have a bunch of people who qualify to be deacons and you don't necessarily need everyone to be a deacon. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> you don't need a million deacons. Yeah. Well, well, they had seven for 3,000 people. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but it's also a <clears throat> an understanding that, it, like Gordon said, everybody's called to serve. It's not that now that we have these designated people, they're the servants and you know, nobody else does. There's an element of representation too. We, everybody that, um, it's, very, it's, an, it's an easy tendency for us to look at people that are in designated places and to use what we see in them to project into the organization. So if there's a person that's not a Christian or they're new to faith or whatever it is, and they come to a church and they're like, what does this church like? And then they see our deacons serving. Um, as as an office, as an, an official capacity, um, they can reasonably expect that they're a representation of the culture and the spirit and the the love of the church. So, in in identifying specific deacons, as opposed to just saying, "Well, everyone's a servant, so everyone's a deacon," um, it allows for uh, Christ Church to be properly represented in areas of service and ministry. Um, and one of the things that the church struggled with then, struggles with now, is uh, is 
inter in internal fighting and uh, true demonstrations of love. And so what deacons get to do is they get to embody those elements um, in a way that makes it aspirational. The rest of the church sees our deacons, you know, like, well, who sets all the, up all these chairs? Who helps the person with their fence? Who, like, oh, the deacons, they're the ones that are s behaving in a servant uh, in a servanthood kind of way. Right. And they're not just taking care of needs, but they're really showing genuine love. And I think we can sort of assume that a lot of what the seven did, at least in Act 6, is somewhat administrative, um, so that, that we have at least yeah, 3,120 people who are part of their church. They have seven deacons. So I think some of it is also like finding the people to serve, because I'm assuming that because they're talking about widows there, not that they were doing a daily distribution of food to all 3,000 people. Um, so maybe the seven people could do it, uh, but it seems like there would also be kind of an organizational yeah. aspect to that of, hey, we need to help with this thing, so we're going to get the church to help with this For thing. Sure. Um, instead of having the apostles, and this is kind of their point, is instead of having the apostles not teaching because they're meeting in houses and going about to spreading the gospel, instead of having them stopping doing that to find the organization to make sure food distribution happens. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the first office we see. Um, I mean, the first office we see is apostle, but we're going we're gonna to get there. Um, the primary other office we see in... Um, Grudem points out, is elders. And so this is a term used multiple places in Scripture. We have different, uh, I think we have Titus has um, some of the things for us. Uh, and so we have different words that are used for it. Um, we have shepherd, we have overseer, we have uh, um, presbyter. Uh, those are the three, right? And so, but they are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. And so we are given uh, here in First Timothy 3, uh, the list of what a, what the qualifications are, one of the lists for the qualifications of an elder. And so um, this is the other part. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone who does not know how to if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might be conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Okay. So, uh, I think pretty straightforward. Most of them are character similar. things. Yeah, most of them are <laughs> similar things to the deacons too. Like it's a there's a couple extra ones, but um, for the most part, the people who are qualified to be deacons, other than the teaching part, uh, would be qualified to be overseers, right? Like, theoretically, Stephen yeah. would have been qualified to be an elder in the church. Um, this structure for the church we don't really see until later on um, when the church is scattered throughout the entire world. Yeah. So at the point that they're in Jerusalem, the Twelve are acting <coughs> as elders, really, so yeah. they don't have lay elders. Yeah. I think that's kind of what is happening. And yep. then as they spread out and start planting churches, it, it is extremely clear that you can't have only 12 churches uh, when you're in that many different places and cities. And so they set up the system of elders. And we're told, in and pastors and teachers, I guess, would be another way to say that. Um, <clears throat> and we're told in Ephesians that Christ actually gave those to the church. So that when they set up this thing, it is from Christ that he's giving elders to the church to govern the church. 
And don't let that word govern scare you. It's this right. shepherding. I, I like yeah. the word shepherding. It's that tending of the flock to make sure your soul is developed, your life is developed. That's less scary to me <laughs> than somebody coming in with a hard and fast rule of everything in my life, like why I should wear it. Right. right. And I think part of it is that that's why we there are things included like you must not be a new convert. Um, because the whole, like the reason given is that they would be conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. That's because, uh, if someone's a new convert becomes uh, elder and they're like, Oh, I'm great. I'm everything I say is kind of perfect. And then you go like, I'm the most important elder. And then they take that authority from other people. I think that's kind of what's happening there. Um, that they're the, 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 not that they wouldn't meet these other qualifications. Like someone could become a new convert and have all these other things and according to Paul, I mean the church wasn't very old so new convert right, wasn't new convert doesn't mean like I mean Paul is in a decade into he's in first, not necessarily in a decade in a year in Christian life Corinth for 18 months and sets up elders yeah. so uh, new convert I think meaning like someone gets saved and that day you make them an elder um, but in our context well, I think yeah. we could extend that slightly we would um, <laughs> we have we, we, would, we would and we have uh, but but I think in their context we are 20, 30 years in, we even have Timothy is third generation as part of the church. So yeah. even at that point, um, Timothy's not a new convert, right? So he's grown up in the church. Uh, and so even though he's young, he's not a new convert. And so he's being given instructions from Paul on how to uh, oversee the church in Ephesus. And this is Paul telling him, okay, here's the people that you need. Yeah. And this is the type of people to look for to put in charge because Paul had put elders in charge in Ephesus before he left <clears throat> and then sends Timothy as basically the overseer of overseers. Uh, and so I think the main difference between then and now, um, and, and this change happens pretty quickly, um, is that now in most churches that are elder led, which are churches as well, you have lay elders and you have called pastors. Um, and so the lay, el- we don't like, bring in people to be elders from outside. That's not really a thing. Yeah. But um, pastors who are brought in also meet these same qualifications. That's kind of the idea in, in Scripture, is that uh, Timothy is sent to Ephesus, and so he's kind of our example, I think, of what it looks like to be a called pastor into a church yeah. that has elders. Right. And so it's not that there were no <laughs> elders. Paul set up elders. We see his farewell to them in Acts 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's elders there. Um, and then I think Paul is making the the practical point that you're going to have to replace them at some point. Um, I don't know if that meant they had term limits or what they did, or if it was you're an elder till you die. But at some point, those people are going to die, um, yeah. and you need new elders. <clears throat> and so here's how you replace an elder. Uh, even as a person who's from not from Ephesus, I don't remember where Timothy is from, but it's not Ephesus. Um, and so here's how you do that. So, yeah. So that is elders. Um, do we need to add more about elders? Um, I I think the other point Gruda yeah. makes is that we have a plurality of elders. Yeah. So the, what we see in Scripture is Paul doesn't say to Timothy, get yourself one good elder and you guys are good, or say to Timothy, well, now that you're there, we don't need elders. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so exactly. the, what seems to be in line with what Scripture teaches is that we have a plurality of elders from the church who match this description, and those are the people <laughs> who oversee the church, and what it allows for is if someone is getting conceited or if there's false teaching or any of those things, that that is able to be called out um, like immediately. Uh, and so if the church gets off mission, it can be corrected because there's not just one person in charge. And when you have one person in charge, 
it's very easy for that person's ideas to become what the church is doing rather than what is in scripture. Exactly. Also, it's easy to have blind spots if it's just right. one person. Yeah. Totally. Like, yeah, totally. there's things I like to emphasize that yeah. Jeremiah does not like to emphasize. Sure. Yeah. And so then you're like, okay, we need to figure that out. And so it yeah. allows for all of that to happen. Yeah. Uh, and then we, in that, see the same kind of thing that's happening in Acts 6, where the elders are supposed to mainly be focused on the spiritual health of the church. Uh, and the deacons are focused on the practical needs of the church. And so that's the primary ways these two things work. Yeah, it's the areas of emphasis. That way the whole, the whole church gets served in a holistic way that <clears throat> the plurality of elders, like it's, you said, it's like it covers blind spots so that it, we're areas that we, we, we may be weak uh, or have a, a lack of interest or perception or exposure, whatever the, whatever it is, we have somebody that the Lord has really put that heavily or strongly on their heart and that's where they're really focused uh, but it also allows us to um, and this is probably one of the more uh, compelling aspects of elders is that we we draw one another into a into a higher standard of spiritual life and so there's the accountability that's there but there's also that um, awareness as elders that we are we are overseeing the 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 spiritual life of the church and so in our meetings and in our conversations, um, we are having um, time and prayer and focus to say, Lord, how, how, can we, how can we enhance the spiritual life of our, of our church so that um, people are growing in a way that the Bible describes? So now it's not management so much to say, okay, well, these are the operational questions that have to be decided. It's more, what are the initiatives? What are the forward-moving um, progressive kind of concepts that we need to instill into the church for us to be growing are there areas where there's weakness where there's people in our church that may not be receiving the same kind of discipleship emphasis that um, that others are are there are we balanced do we have primarily spiritually uh, less mature people that need to be discipled in a particular way or are we primarily a very mature congregation and and these are the things that i think as elders in the coming together and sharing our uh, our love for the Lord and our aspirations for his church, I think the Holy Spirit comes and moves in a very compelling way to be move forward and to not just be managerial, but to be aspirational. And that's part of why the prayer and the, the, the studying of the word is so important is that um, this isn't just merely administrative um, to make sure all the functions run. It is, spiritually focused so that every person has a has a, an opportunity to grow in their faith and to grow in their obedience um, so it's a really significant um, uh, oversight if we do not have local elders leading the church because um, leading the church is more than just making decisions for the church right yeah yeah and i think part of so part of that is what we as part of the christian missionary alliance you have like two choices basically you can have one kind of governing board or two and so we have two um one being our elder board one being our administrative board and so one of the ways that that is accomplished is by taking most of the administrative tasks that are purely like okay we're going to look at policies yep. and taking that out of the out of the elders agenda and putting that onto uh the admin board and the admin board makes those decisions uh, so, so that we're not, uh, in a similar way to with the deacons, not w kind of wasting our time talking about, uh, random 
policy questions that and we could be answered otherwise outside of an elder board. And then discussion. our admin board has representation from our elders. Right. So that Nigel sits on both of them. And then we have our Chris. Vice, our vice chair is also so an elder. Yeah. So yeah. there's always a connection there so that it isn't two autonomously operating boards. Like I said, Jeremiah, we're, we're, the, the elders are essentially through the admin board delegating the tasks of policy oversight and budget oversight. And, but all of those things uh, still get reviewed uh, on an elder level to make right. sure that uh, we aren't putting policies in that are not going to contribute overall to the health of the church. Uh, it's just that getting uh, into the weeds of the words to make a policy yep. uh, is a little bit always fun. That's the tedious, always fun. That's the tedious. <laughs> it, it is. Part. It can be fun, <laughs> but that it's a different. Like we looked at the, the because the area of emphasis is different between an elder and a deacon the gifting that we would look for in somebody that's an elder in our church, I think is very uh, unique in the sense that our elders oversee areas of ministry. So they are not just people that come in and bring their spiritual relationship into a conversation, but they actually have a very formal role in overseeing an area of ministry. So they, they interact uh, regularly in our children and youth and worship and um, the, the sacraments of the church. Uh, um, the, we, we, our elder board is very, very active. Um, and so when we consider those that are going to sit on the elder board, we are also looking at, um, at how they're gifted so that they can oversee an area of ministry. And uh, that way we're really much more hands-on than maybe in, in other settings. I, I, I personally love the way that our our church here at Parkside is is organized. It's fantastic. Yeah, and then we also still have the deacons, and the deacons are focused on the practical part of like how the ministry goes out to the people. Yeah. So where the admin board is focused on uh, very administrative tasks, um, and has very long meetings about said administrative tasks. Uh, <laughs> the elder board yeah. also has a lot. Very. I don't think the deacon meetings are that long. Um, I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think they're pretty chill. Are we? we? Yes. Yeah. Are we? All right. Let's no. do that. All right. Doing. Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to help this person. Um, so, um, so that is elders and deacons. I think we pretty much covered that. Maybe if something comes up, you can bring it up. Um, the other place that comes up when we talk about, uh, offices is a place we talked about last week in the primary purposes of the church. Uh, and that is Ephesians four. Um, so, um, I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about it. Um, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. <clears throat> and so this is where um, the idea of a fivefold ministry would come from. Um, we have... So um, we have these five things. Um, and so the idea of a fivefold ministry is that we still have... All five of these, right? That's the idea. Um, pastors and teachers seems to be one thing, actually. Um, there are teaching and leading gifts in First Corinthians. So we're not talking about spiritual gifts here. We're not talking about, like, 
Like you could have, you could be a pastor who has the gift of evangelism and giving. Great. Fantastic. Wonderful yeah, times. Exactly. Um, but you still have to meet the qualifications of an elder. So you still have to be able to teach. So you can't be like, well, I'm, I don't really teach, but I'm a pastor. That doesn't work uh, based on first Timothy. So we <laughs> have to have the, yeah. all the things, right? So um, I think pastors and teachers, it's, I understand why we would maybe separate them, but typically I think, and in the, it seems like they're actually one thing. And most translations put them as um, one thing. Most of the translations that I they're, found. They're, they're paired together. They're paired together. Yeah. There is no So in the Greek, there's no article between them. Um, so we have conjunctions between them, but we don't have an article between them. But we have articles before apostles, right. prophets, evangelists, pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and teachers doesn't have an article. And so oftentimes in translations, they are included as one thing it's not that the translations are saying there's no oxford comma that's not what's happening (laughs) instead (laughs) well you could read it and think that like oh okay but there's no yeah i don't i think for a long time they were using oxford commas so so what they're saying is most in most translations is that pastors and teachers are one office one gift given to the church um so i think that becomes an issue sort of is then we start sort of splitting hairs um to make there be five because it's nice to have five um, and then <laughs> it's nice to have fun. And uh, what is the test called? A pest. A pest, which not a great name that's for a not test. A great name. The, <laughs> but if it becomes a pest, that's not. That's also not great. The because um, shepherd, we replace uh, pastor with shepherd, sure, and that's it, typically how those get split out. Is that pastors are the people who shepherd people, and it's more like a counseling, caregiving, uh, caregiving mm-hmm. kind yeah. of role. And the teacher role is the getting up and preaching and leading small groups and doing instruction. Um, yeah. And that I think. From what we saw of the elders part, if and one of the reasons they divide is because those are separate spiritual gifts, right? So they are separate spiritual gifts. So I think it gets that's it, where it gets tricky. That's where yeah. it, so you could be a pastor who maybe has does some teaching. You would gifts. say, oh, I don't have the spiritual gift of teaching, but I have to teach. Okay, that's fine. Um, but here we're talking about gifts Christ gives to the church rather than spiritual gifts mm-hmm. people have. Given by the spirit, right. and, but right. <laughs> the the spirituals, as they say, um, I think it's important though to recognize that this framework of a fivefold ministry gift is an, is a charismatic framework. And yes, this is not. If you go to a Presbyterian church and you, you say, would never hey, hear this. What are the, what are the five offices? And they're like, what are you talking about? Five what? right. So Grudem Deacon, doesn't even bring this up. Bishop. <laughs> Grudem doesn't say Pope. anything about it. No, uh, in. He, maybe he does in like actual in his systematic theology, but I I don't think I don't, so. I don't recall um, that he does. And maybe in his I updated to one, look it up. could be yeah. could be true. So it there the the fivefold concept um, in in my opinion gets too rigid in the sense of um, this is the apostle, this is the prophet, this is the evangelist. Um, it seems like these are kinds of gifts that are given in order to accomplish the purpose for which they are there. Um, and and what what those fivefold gifts, when we think of them in a charismatic sense, that means that they are contemporary, that um, what Christ gave at the beginning of the church continues. So today there are apostles, today there are prophets, today there are evangelists, to pastors, teachers. When, um, if this is not used in a charismatic framework, they would say through the history of the church, God has used prophets. apostles, pa- prophets. Yep. And so... Um, the, the, I think the debate today in our conversations within, you know, in-house kind of debate is, 
is the office of prophet and apostle. Are, there, are those offices right. that are... Because I don't think there's anyone who would say there's not evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Exactly. Um, I think... But, <laughs> I mean, part of that is that we had sensationalism hit us in the last century and a half. Yeah. Like, we've gotten rid of prophecy. Some churches, some streams of Christianity have gotten rid of prophecy. Right. So if well, prophecy's gone, you got to get rid of the prophet and the apostle. And you, the, the, right, so it's the it's function. It's a down, yeah. I think, downstream of that. Yeah, but I, I think calling people apostle and prophet, though, also... Um, went away until the 40s, really. Um, we didn't have people we called, other than if you're in a Roman Catholic church, technically, I think the Pope has apostolic authority, therefore... Apostolic authority. No, uh, no, they call him apostle. I don't know if they call him apostle, but that's the idea. Yeah, that's Because the... he can speak ex-cathedra. When he speaks ex-cathedra, it is the doctrine of the church. And so for... Um, because that's the distinction of the apostles, right? They laid the foundation. Right. They laid the foundation, and that's in Ephesians two. So in Ephesians two, it says that that the foundation has been laid of the prophets and the apostles, or the apostles and the prophets, and that and the cornerstone is Christ. And so Christ is a cornerstone. Foundation has been laid. That's the prophets and the apostles. Um, and those prophets are Old Testament prof- yes. prophets, right? Like the, I think the, so. the pro- in, in Ephesians two, they were. in Ephesians two at least. Right. Yes. So they're looking at how did how did Christ become identified as our Savior? He was prophesied. All the Old Testament prophets um, are pointing forward to Christ. So that's that's the idea: is that the foundation for our understanding that Jesus is Savior comes from the apostle, from the prophets of the Old Testament. They are attested to by the, apostles. by the apostles of the New Testament. And from here forward, we are evangelizing the world with the foundational truths. In order to do that, we need to have shepherds who oversee the care and life of the church. We need teachers that will teach those truths. You need evangelists to go and be missionaries. Right. So there's another framework to look at Ephesians 5 in for in um, that doesn't necessarily identify specific callings as those things. Um, And I'm not against those things necessarily because we do see reference to prophets in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Like that's one of the weird things. Like if we're going to get rid of prophecy because the new testament doesn't have prophets and it's really odd to have prophets in the new testament how like we right. haven't, I don't, i've never heard a cessationist deal with and there prophecy. were other apostles besides the 12 like right sent ones right? yeah right so i think yeah so part of it is if we if we go through both parts the apostles part with different sent ones i think depends on what we mean by apostle um and so there are like barnabas is called an apostle but he's an apostle from the church at antioch um the apostles of jesus christ are there's 13 of them um, I think in scripture. So Paul, when he says he's an apostle, it, he means something different. Like when he, when he makes an argument for his own apostleship, he's not saying I was sent by the church in Antioch. Yeah. He's saying Jesus Christ specifically called me to my face. I saw Jesus yeah. and he called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the words Jesus used when he called me. Yeah. Um, so he's Barnabas, associating himself right, with the twelve. that I have the different same authority, types of apostles. Right, yeah. I have the same authority as the 12. Um, I think it's confusing because if we try to take that same distinction into English, what ends up happening is that you, unlike deacons and elders, we do not have, other than in Acts 1, a description of what would make someone an apostle. Um, so what ends up happening is we change it to an adjective uh, and we say this person's apostolic and then we're having an entirely different conversation mm. that has nothing to do with the word but, apostle. Right. <laughs> well, it has to do with the word apostle because well, they're cognates, but... The, because right. but we're, becomes we're, a gifting instead right, of... Right, a gifting uh, rather than not a gift given is, by which Christ. Is, which is great, but what we... 
I mean, observably, when we see apostolic churches, um, what is the temperament of that apostle? Right, because to find what you would do as an apostle, typically what people do is they go to the Acts of the Apostles, um, uh, which is... And the, and the authority of the apostles. And they say, well, this is what the apostles did, so this is what I do as an apostle. And yeah. so that's not small A and big A apostles. That's you think you're a big A apostle, but you're scared to say so because you know that there are 13 of those. And, <laughs> right. and it'd be really awkward if you started telling people, like, the Pope speaking ex cathedra, that you can give new doctrines to the church. And that becomes, I think, the issue, is that you have no way to define what apostolic is other than being sent. But when you hear people talk about apostles, if you replace that word with, because this is the argument often that we made, is that they just mean missionary. But if you talk to people about apostles and you replace that word with missionary, it would make no sense. If you went to an apostolic church that has an apostle... And you said, oh, you're just a missionary. They'd be like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make... Like, if you yeah. replace right. the things they're doing... We should with... let them define the term that they're using, right. not, not us for it. Um, and so I think it is a distinguishing of terms. That becomes difficult because the New Testament uses the same term for both, and we don't. And I think for us, missionaries would actually fall into the category of evangelists. And it's been abused heavily. Yeah. yeah. The idea Very of apostolic much. authority is kind of crazy. Uh, we, but we still have, and I would, this is probably, I would, until someone can prove they have meet the qualifications for the 13, I'd be like, I'm not going to call you an apostle. Um, come on, Jeremiah, call me apostle. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but, right. I just, uh, I'm not going to the, <laughs> so if you don't meet those qualifications, I call you pastor. I can call you teacher. I'm not going to call you apostle. And when people assist on it and usually they don't insist on it, I think because they know this, um, then like Jesus says, don't make people call you rabbi. Right. So yeah. they, they, they realize that's in there. So in they fact, can't Jesus say, says, don't let people like, right. It's, it's more forceful than don't make like, don't, don't try to position yourself this way is like do whatever you can to not and that paul does that so many times he says i could have applied yeah i could have said, my hey. authority i'm not like this is this is and the people who do are false teachers the people in second corinthians Always. who say i'm an apostle they actually call themselves the super apostles uh it's their name for themselves which is pretty cool uh <laughs> those other all apostles the, they the weren't cakes. that great i'm the super cakes. uh they like they were false teachers yeah. they they weren't actually apostles at all that's paul's yeah. point is these they're, guys they're, they're, not, they're coming in to deceive you that's the whole thing they're and he says that they that satan disguises himself as an angel light so why are we surprised when his messengers do and so he's saying the super apostles actually weren't sent by jesus they're not apostles of jesus yeah if they're apostles of anyone it's satan and i was like oh that's a that's a really intense claim yeah, uh so i would Corinth needed to hear i think that. <laughs> and i would say in ephesians 4 i think paul is talking about same thing he's talking about in Ephesians 2. And I think Ephesians 2 uh, solidifies that. Because I think in the New Testament there are prophets, but that's not the foundation the church is built on. No. Uh, the church is built on the foundation of the Old Testament prophets. And so Jesus did give us the gift of the Old Testament prophets. We don't have the writings of the prophets of the New Testament. So that's why we can't say that we're being built on that. Yeah. We don't know what they said. We know Philip's daughters were prophets. What is that? What did they prophesy? I have no idea. (laughs) That was never written down, at least as far as we know. Maybe they wrote Hebrews. (laughs) There's a different theory. (laughs) (laughs) Am I getting punked right now? It's not a good theory. It's not a good theory. theory. (laughs) There's no proof of it. But you know what I mean? Like, we don't know what they said. We know there were other prophets. We know there were whole groups of people that prophesied. So we can't say prophecy doesn't happen. Um, And they prophesied in similar ways. That the old had like Agabus, right, and, uh, you know, with with Paul's imprisonment, um, the the famine that was going to happen, like yeah, there there was a futuristic element to prophecy. It wasn't a different kind of prophecy. 
Um, and it always came true. Yeah. like the, So the, I think part of it is also the prophets here, um, being the Old Testament prophets, if someone wants to claim the office of prophet, which is what we're talking about, rather than the gift of prophecy, yeah. uh, if we're going to claim the office, then you have to meet the standard. Uh, and the standard is not given to us in the New Testament. I think the standard the New Testament is using is the Old Testament standard. Not that we kill people, no one's suggesting that, but that I don't have to listen to anyone who gives a false prophecy. I have no reason to call you prophet. Well, um, I'm going to push back a little sure, bit. Sure, that's fine. We preach. Yep, <laughs> sure. If if I missed it yeah. in my preaching, you wouldn't call me a false preacher right away. Right, you would give me a sure. chance to repent. No, no, no. Yeah. So I, I get the Old Testament. I mm-hmm. uh, and the, I think the Old Testament, we not everybody had the Holy Spirit of believers, yeah. but in the yep. New Testament, we do. Yep. So I, I don't know if I can apply. So the reason I, I would is that's, because typically mm-hmm. the prophecies come with the statement, "Thus saith the Lord," mm. and that is where King you, James. Woo. So, <laughs> Sure, but people still say that. I, don't know. I, I, people I get really it. like thus saith. I don't know why. They feel like it makes them seem like they have more authority, I think. If you, if you speak in King James language... Because that's you... what the Old Testament prophets spoke in. Yeah, they did, obviously. The... <laughs> it should really be prophesying in Hebrew. Come on. The... <laughs> but I think the issue is that... To usually... So when I preach, when I get up and preach, um, and I, I think I've made this disclaimer before. I don't necessarily make it every time. The... The idea is go be a Berean and look at the Bible and make sure it lines up, yeah. right? No, like yeah. I, I, so so then the but if but you're still in the office of a pastor teacher. Yes, pastor teacher. Um, but the standard for pastor teacher that has that we actually given in Scripture isn't that I get everything right. It is that I do do my best to present myself a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but it can correctly handle the word of truth, right? And so that's the standard. Well, but it. And so the standard for prophecy that I've been given, if you say God said, then God needed to have said. And so I think really there's a lot of people who call themselves prophets who maybe need to keep some of those things in their head and make sure you're like... I'm not disagreeing (laughs) with that. That's what I'm saying is is we have all these people who are like, everybody can be prophets. And first off, no. First Corinthians 12 says not everyone prophesies. So not everyone can prophesy. It's impossible. Um, Yeah. it's Paul says so. Gifts of the Spirit. So gifts so. of the Spirit, so you can't. Um, so there's all these people being activated in their prophetic gift, and then they go and they prophesy and said, God told me. And they always start this way. They want to say they're not starting this way, but they always do. They start, God told me, and then they say something. And then it didn't happen. And they say, well, my bad. That was just me. Yeah. Well, you didn't say it was you. You said it was God. Yeah. So I would then conclude, not that you're not a believer, but that I don't, next time you say God told me, I do not need to take you seriously. Because you're inaccurate. Exactly. That would be my reason. Well, so also, but, the same thing I would apply to teachers often. If And I probably would give slightly more grace, but just slightly. If someone gets up and teaches on Sunday morning and the thing is wrong, I'm going to go tell them. Like, I don't think that was right. And then the expectation is that they would go and publicly say, hey, that was wrong. Um, but if someone constantly gets up and teaches something that's wrong, I just am going to, no, you don't, you shouldn't be, you're obviously either a new convert who has no idea what you're doing or you were trained poorly or you're a false teacher. Those are, those are our options. Um, and all of them result in two of those, (laughs) right? We can fix the knowledge. We can fix the training. And I think all of those though result in, you need to take a break from teaching. Well, but we have a different opportunity for, uh, for accountability too. Yeah. Like if I'm teaching God's word, because of what our we're, we're, subject is, right? But what, like, 
it's always dicey water to get into these. Well, this is what I think, right? That's as soon as we get it. Like if you hear me or you hear any of us or a preacher say, wade into God's word and then use the word I think, um, we're getting to speculation, which now means that I'm not teaching you what I know God's word says. I'm going to tell you what I think God says, which is fine. I'm not against that. But now what we have the opportunity to do for anybody that's in the church is say, okay, well, I have God's word. It's I got like it right here. confusing passages in scripture sometimes. There are some. <laughs> there are. And so, but now, now I, have, I have something to look at that says, okay, well, when he said that and he thought this, um, did it line up? And right. if it did line up, it's like, okay, I can understand how we got there. And there are confusing passages that don't have uh, a, a, a clear um, and observable um, interpretation. So we're working with it. The question is, when it becomes prophecy, what is the what is the background? What's the objectable, measurable, uh, when it is um, speaking on behalf of God? If we can look at God's word to identify whether someone has taught well, the only thing we can look at is whether that word came to true to determine whether he prophesied well. And when a person prophesies in the name of God, and it doesn't come to pass, now we he has he she whoever that person is has established a credibility gap that cannot be undone apart from repentance. Right. And I think part of the problem is we then fall into, realistically, then when the the Mormon person comes to my door and says, Joseph Smith is a prophet, and I say, well, he had false prophecies, I don't have a standard to say he's a false prophet because he was after the New Testament. So then I have to, and I could still say, but even, even the second one, if they lead you to a different God, which, That's which Joseph Smith does, but it's still Deuteronomy. And so I think we; those are the those are the tests we've been given from Scripture. So when I look at Scripture and say, "What's the objective mm-hmm. objective thing that I can measure your prophecy against?" It's Deuteronomy. Not that you get killed. Not that you even get thrown out of the church. But that Deuteronomy says you don't need to be afraid of that person. You don't need to listen to them because right. they've they've either told you something that didn't happen was going to happen, or uh, and so I think a lot of it is that maybe if you think you have a prophecy. Maybe wait a minute before you actually say it. Like if you're like, oh, you know what? I do have the gift of prophecy. I'm just going to yeah. start saying but stuff. We're, but we're not doing that. We're we're saying, risk Go it. Go try. Send it. Yeah. Be. If you feel the the moving, don't don't second guess or evaluate. Because right. if you do that, you're Which quenching I think is the spirit. Not what happens in First Corinthians. I think in First Corinthians, both with gift of the, the gift of tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Because Paul says all of you have a word. You can't just come in here and start talking. Mm. That's not what we're doing. The, they, I think what they do is they go to the elders of the Corinthian church and they say, hey, I have this word. And there's there's like a line. And I, I would assume then that the prophet people share what they maybe think God told them or yep. say or saying God told them. And the those are the people who are testing the prophecy before it is given as a public prophecy. And I think a lot of people two aren't or three of them. doing that, right? Like a lot yeah. of people are saying, well, I have a feeling. I'm going to go for it. And then when it's yeah. objectively proven that it was not true, we go, well, we'll give them another shot. And, and we don't do that necessarily. That happens less frequently in the context of a church gathering and more frequently in the context of a YouTube video. Right. That's like, what I would say. Like is, there's no platform to say. Yeah. I'm sure there are churches that are doing this well. Yeah. I'm sure there are churches that I've even seen, um, even at some of God churches, which when I grew I, up. I had somebody in our church four years ago before COVID came up to me and said, I have a word and he's shared it with me. And I said, I, I that that may mean something to you, but I don't think it means as much to the congregation as you think it does. It's very specific in the context of having known him, something he was wrestling with personally, and it was only going to come across as um, a a way of confessing something that would then 
bring glory to him. This was not going to be yeah. uh, revelational to the congregation. So we just said, uh, said no. Right. And so I, and I think those prophets in the yeah. New Testament, even we don't see them constantly prophesying. And this would be my other critique of like the, basically the YouTube prophets. Cause I'm sure there are churches, like I said, that are doing this well. I'm positive of it. The, uh, I've even seen a of God, like when I grew up in the Assemblies of God, the, uh, randomly someone would speak in tongues and then there would be an interpretation, right? I've seen Assemblies of God churches that are like, don't do that. Come up to the front, tell us you have a word, and then we're going to wait up here for the interpreter to come up before you go up. That's what we're going to do. And so, yeah, that, that's, and same thing. Where mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you telling someone like, hey, I think God told me this, like you one-on-one, is, and then that person goes, I don't think that's prophecy. Okay. I don't think that's publicly prophesying. And so I think my main issue with like the... Because in some level, you have to grow your gift. Just sure, like I'm growing so- my gift. I'm learning to hear the voice of God and how to deliver it. Yeah. And I'm not using thus say the Lord um, because I don't live in 18th century. <laughs> but I also have this caution that it c- I could... Right. I, I'm, just, I'm learning to hear God's voice. Yeah. I'm learning to hear what's me and what's my burrito. Yeah. yeah. And I would, that's why I would be weary of people who take for themselves the office of apostle and prophet rather than saying they have a gift of prophecy. Right. Right. That I can, to take the office of prophet in the sense of Ephesians puts me on the level with the old Testament prophets. And if you want to be on the level with the old Testament prophets, it's fine. You just have to be as accurate as the old Testament prophets. The, you know, yeah. like the, yeah. if that's what we're going to do, then let's do it. And, right. but, Oftentimes what happens is someone says, I'm the prophet, and then they go, and they give a false prophecy, and they're like, but you can't judge me how you would judge Isaiah. I was like, no, that you just said you were the prophet. That's what you not said. A, yeah. Not, I have the and, gift and of the, prophecy. the church in Corinthians is chastised, at least 1 Corinthians, is chastised for allowing too much yeah. um, uh, of the, the individual's agenda spiritually or like the super apostles but it was also a culture that the church was in which is we're, we're just going to let all the spiritual things fly and do whatever Paul says, we want that, you cannot do that he's Paul, like you that that is that is not only dishonoring to god but it is leading people astray so i would actually i would actually differentiate if, if someone has what they believe to be the gift of prophecy and they come and they share that prophecy and and it turns out to be uh false um, I'm, I'm not making a decision on their salvation. I think people can make mistakes. Um, we can get ahead of ourselves and speak accurately. But if if that person um, develops and matures and says, "Okay, no, I, I was that was totally the burrito, right?" Like that kind of thing, then it's a repentance and, and development and growth thing, and they become more discerning. The one where I would say we're we're, we're no longer dealing with uh, an intramural conversation is if that person then leads you to another god. Right, if if the part or the function or the purpose of a prophecy yeah. was to say, because um, the the context in Deuteronomy specifically is if they say something and it comes to pass, or they do a miracle, like there's there's supernatural things happening. In our mind as Christians, we think, well, that's God doing amazing things, and God's like, no, the devil does amazing things. He mm-hmm. is a counterfeit. He is the angel of light. Th- th- there are so many situations that that the 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 devil is mimicking to try and bring glory to himself. Um, that we underestimate his power frequently. So the idea that if there is someone that's prophesying and performing miracles, but at the end of the day, their agenda is to take you away from your confidence in Christ. They are leading you to another God. They themselves are then still under the mastery of the God of this world. Yep. And, and 
That's a scarier. That now we're having gospel conversations. Yeah, and where, that would be a false prophet, that, not just somebody that, who's claiming. Exactly. Right? Now, now it's not false prophecy. It's false a false prophet. prophet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that you would end up, and you can end up there. You're not just not profit. You're, you're an actual false prophet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and I think we should make that distinguish distinction with people because I think there's some people who, based on, um, and I think this is true in in like the online world more than anything. Yeah. Uh, based on what they see out there, they're like, oh, everybody's a prophet, and I just need to wait for my prophecy, and it'll happen. And some people just need to be told like, hey, you're not a prophet. The, <laughs> and yeah. that would solve a lot of issues. <laughs> um, but then you have the people who, and I think Paul gives us a clearer command in that sense that different Jesus, different spirit counts as leading you to a different God, right? Yeah. That we believe in the Trinity. And so if we have someone who leads you to a different spirit or a different Jesus or a different God, the father, than any of that, yeah. uh, or not the Trinity, that person is either mm-hmm. a false teacher or false prophet. Right. Uh, not, but, but the way we know what that spirit is, is through the activity and the, yeah. the profession of the person. Like right. there isn't a spirit out there that's like, Oh, you you manifested yourself in this person over here. So it's actually just the message that was wrong, but the person's fine. No, the the purpose of saying discerning the spirit is to tell under whose control the person is. Yeah. Not not just. And we would test that doctrine by scripture. So in that sense, our object like most of the people who claim to be prophets, I think, also are teachers nowadays. A lot of them, at least, they'll do Bible teaching every now and again. Sometimes they don't, but. A lot of times they're well, also invited to go and yeah. preach. And well, so they're, you they're could, trying to substantiate the Right. You could very easily test on that as well. You could say, okay, so this is what you're teaching. This is what scripture says. Does your teaching line up? Well, if your teaching doesn't line up with what scripture says, or you're teaching a different Jesus, not that you have some weird thoughts. Yeah. Because everyone has their own opinion things that are like, eh, it's an odd one, but okay. Right. The- <laughs> no, that's weird thoughts. <laughs> Which are the things that like you might share in conversation that you wouldn't share from a stage and some people haven't learned that yet. Um, and that's fine. But the things that are like, this is uh, this is a different gospel now. Then, again, don't have to listen to your prophecy because you're not a true prophet. Yeah. Um, and that that is fine to do. If someone is consistently teaching, same thing with teaching. If someone's teaching you a different gospel, don't listen to them, is what Paul says. He doesn't say like, hey, just keep trying it out and hope it gets better. Uh, the <laughs> like i think sometimes our standard for teaching maybe is like maybe our standard for prophecy is not too high maybe our standard for teaching is too low and we need because he says not to be a new convert he says these people have to be trained they have to show that they've studied the word of god before they preach yeah. because and, and i think that's where the tie is otherwise they will become conceited the idea there is that they will become puffed up by yeah. virtue of their position but they also end up making everything about themselves yeah and that was the deception of Satan. I mean, he, that's the word he used, right? You will be deceived in the same way that Satan is. You will follow in his footsteps when you make church activity about you, and it's glorifying you. And sure. that's that's when it maybe takes a little bit more time to um, to think through uh, whether this is about you or about God. The one office I know we, we have nothing that we've talked about has their uh, goddess area, but the one office of the New Testament that we never talk about very in a, in the context of um, church ministry is that of the the priest. Um, we have, I think, in some ways, just said priest is the same as pastor, so we're not worried about the words anymore. Um, but if we read the New Testament, the word priest disappears, except for the high priest who continues to be Christ. Christ is the high priest. Um, all of the functions of the New Testament church are no longer priestly in the sense of the sacrificial, exactly, yeah. in the sense of the Old Testament system of temple rituals now we are all the priesthood um, say, everybody's a priest right now right we, we all have the ability and that's 
that function is to show that um, it is no longer those who hold a special office that have access to the holy place of God. Now we all have gained access to yep. the to so the priestly function that at one point was an intermediary has been fully consumed and assumed by Christ. He will always be our advocate. He will always be our intercessor. He is our mediator forever. So um, the priestly office uh, where someone is closer to God than someone else has disappeared. And I, and I think we overlook that somewhat just because we, we blend language and certain denominations still use the, the, the frock and they use the, the, the lingo. Um, but I think there is something to it that there's an imposing um, connotation to the word priest that isn't there with pastor. If you go to somebody that's a pastor, you assume oh, they care for people, they preach their, their, their local church. If you think priest, you think that there is something sacred about their duty that is, is, is higher. And I think we should get rid of the word priest in New Testament church life. Other than about Jesus. Other than Jesus. Because he's like, he, the office hasn't disappeared. But he's our prophet. But he's the only one king. eligible, yeah. right? Nobody else gets to, nobody else has that role. He is forever our intercessor. So there are no more priests in the New Testament. I think if just uh, as, far, as far as looking at offices of the church, that's one that I yeah. think we should put I think the only one we didn't cover is evangelist. And I think it's because it's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't though. And right. Like... Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist. Um, and I think we would probably actually put our missionaries in that camp. Philip, I think he's an evangelist. I think he's one of the only people who's called an evangelist. And that's what he, he just goes from town to town telling people about Jesus. Like that's what he does. Yeah. Um, you'll see that disappear in church history for a long time. Right. And so yeah. I, I think that comes back in the, Reformation, mostly, uh, is we have all these people who, once you have the Bible in your language, it's much easier to go and tell people about it um, than if it's all in Latin. It makes it difficult. Uh, (laughs) No one can speak the language you're talking about. Um, But I think with the Protestant Reformation comes a... um, I think there probably still were evangelists, but the like actual like functioning as evangelists, and you see that the church spreads super fast after that to all the places it hadn't gone previously or where yeah. it was. It's you have a revival kind of because the reformation is kind of a revival um, happening in all these places because now they have scripture and they have people who are coming to preach the gospel to them. Um, and people like uh, John Knox, who the, the one lady who was killing all the Protestants, she was terrified of him. Um, she had dreams about him. Um, the <laughs> so, so she wouldn't kill him because she was scared. <laughs> she was worried. Bloody Mary. Is that who mm-hmm. that was? Yeah. The uh, <laughs> So, but we have evangelists throughout history and we i think sometimes we think evangelist and we only think like dl moody billy graham billy sunday like we're having tent meetings yeah um but i think in reality um what philip does is he goes from place to place and finds people who don't know jesus and he tells them about jesus but not necessarily sometimes big groups sometimes small groups and just anyone he can find that doesn't know jesus he tells them i think but i think it's a functional thing in the sense that if you are gifted in evangelism and your heart aches for evangelizing those that are lost the way Philip would have. It's it very rarely is a is a twelve second conversation as you're waiting for your coffee or whatever it right. is. It's it's like I'm gonna explain to you the gospel. I'm gonna explain to you Jesus. And if if he takes the approach that Jesus had, which is we're gonna go to the Old Testament, we're talking about the, like it's an involved conversation. You have that involved conversation, um, and people are drawn in. To that conversation because we all have a deep spiritual need that we're trying to resolve in some way and uh, so i think of guys like uh, like ray comfort who 
doesn't set up a tent, doesn't put out flyers and say, Hey, everybody, we're going to meet on this day. He gets on his box, has his amp, you know, his mic or whatever. Uh, he uses to amplify his voice and he's having a conversation with one person and then hundreds gather just to hear the conversation and everybody, you know, comes along and there might be a couple of people that say, well, I, I think I've got a, you know, I've got a gotcha for this. Um, but he just keeps engaging in conversations and talking about the gospel and it has that effect of just drawing groups that are unplanned and spontaneous. And I think that's a part of how an evangelist works. It's not, not just that we all have the opportunity like deacons to be servants. We all have the responsibility to evangelize, but people that are evangelists, they, they have a, they have a way of drawing people around them for the purpose of, of giving them the gospel. Um, when they are active, when they're using their gift, it, it draws a crowd without, without putting out the, yeah. the Facebook event notifications. True. So I think that covers the offices for the most part. If you have comments, questions, um, you want to talk about the Pope, you can talk about the Pope, and I would love to. We can have a whole. <laughs> I take the position of Martin Pope. Luther, so the, <laughs> the, the Lutheran in me has a hammer and nail ready to go. The. Uh, <laughs> That's for next Halloween. Um, if you have questions, comments, you can reach us at podcast at parksidebysellia.org. And until next time. <laughs>